0: Hey there, party people. This is Queer Watching. I am Jesse, here with my best pal Brianna, and today we are talking about Kiki. So this is your spoiler alert for Kiki. It's a documentary, so it's not the most spoilery, but you know, we're gonna talk about stuff they talk about. Kiki is an American-Swedish documentary film released in 2016. It takes place in New York City and focuses on the subset of ballroom culture that is Kiki, which focuses more on the youth. The film was directed by Sarah Daniel and is considered an Unofficial sequel to the influential 1990 film Paris is Burning. And we are going to talk about that a little bit. First premiere January 26, 2016, at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. So, Brianna, first thoughts on Kiki?
1: Yeah. So, I originally saw the documentary Kiki in 2016 um, because Sarah Giordano was a visiting assistant professor at the college that I worked at at the time and so we kind of co-sponsored a screening of the film and then she led a discussion after it and it had stuck with me because I remember having seen Paris is Burning in college and then seeing this and at that point had only lived in New York for like two years so I wasn't really I wasn't involved in this scene at all and I didn't even really know it, that it was still going on so it was really nice to see that it was still vibrant and that it had not only stayed alive but it had evolved uh with the times and that like a lot of the same things that people were doing in Paris is burning people were still doing as a community and like having the houses and stuff like that so that made my heart really really happy so it was just really really cool to see and the the college students that attended the screening very much enjoyed it. And I thought it was really it was really refreshing. And I'm glad that it existed. It was also beneficial because then I got to go and do an internship at the Alley Forney Center when I was a social worker, working with predominantly black and brown LGBTQ. Homeless youth, and a lot of them were involved in this scene. So it was nice to kind of have the context of it existing before actually getting involved in that work. I do think it's funny that it's in our description, it's considered an unofficial sequel because in one of the articles I was reading, it was saying that like Sarah Giordano gets really frustrated when people refer to it as that because it is absolutely in no way associated with Paris's burning. Um, and they, tried really intentionally to not make it like Paris is burning because that film did wind up exploiting a lot of the main people in it. And so I just thought it was funny that that was the language that then was the description that we read, but I'm going to stop talking. Jesse, what are your thoughts about the documentary since you hadn't seen it before?
0: This was very entertaining. This documentary. I do look at it as a kind of unofficial sequel to Paris is burning because I don't really think that you get this if you don't get Paris is burning, but maybe not. I think you're right. Obviously it's not good to exploit everyone in your documentary and make money off of them and the ways that Paris is burning did. But as a historical look at ballroom culture, it was, you know, when I first saw it in college, like one of the greatest things I had ever seen because it it is a window into you know, a whole culture of queer people. And so when you feel so isolated as a queer person and then there's this window that's like, oh no, we've been here forever, we've been doing this, we've been living our lives, having joy, obviously still struggles, but I loved it. I, it's one I revisit every couple of years. So it also is kind of hard to watch this as a modern telling because they still have so many of the same problems. So Paris Burning comes out in 1990, right? But it's like filmed in the late 80s. So it's, there's a 26 year time gap between these. And it's just a little heartbreaking that there are so many people that still have to deal with this. And they still have to turn to the ballroom or the kiki scene to find any love because their lives are so honestly tragic and traumatized by people that are just transphobic, homophobic, racist and all of the different things. So it is a modern look but it's also heartbreaking that this is as far as we've come.
1: Yeah, I I agree and the one thing though that I do want to push back on is you said that like if we didn't have the documentary like Paris is burning that you weren't sure if this would have come to fruition but it was actually one of the main people in the documentary uh that you mentioned Garson and then another person Chichi Mizrahi who approached this person who approached Giordano and so to make this documentary except they wanted to make it into like a web series or like just a couple of like highlights and then together they talked about making it into documentary so I think because it was people from within the community being like hey we think this is important enough to highlight and like the work that we're doing is important enough to highlight I do think it would have happened regardless of Paris is burning I think that Maybe Paris's burning gave Sarah a reference of like, ah, okay, this is like I can see that this would work because it's been done before. but I don't know. I do think it would have still happened if they wanted to make it happen.
0: Something that I thought of a lot watching it is actually the the competitive reality show Legendary mm-hmm. on HBO. Have you ever seen that? I have not it's it's competitive ballroom, honestly, in teams of five from different houses from all over the country there is an occasional Kiki house that joins as well this last the last season they had though is at least one if not two as as someone that is very competitive I was like okay, but are there different rules at all or is it exactly the same as ballroom like still the same categories is there an age limit? I just I, and maybe there's not right maybe there are no rules and that's part of it but as someone who's like always ready to compete I'm like, all right, what are the rules team? <laughs> So and they did point out like some little differences, like some of the kiki houses don't all live together. Like it is more common in ballroom or at least used to be. So there's, I feel like there was a little bit, but I wanted them to explore some of those a little bit more. But as you've mentioned, maybe if, you know, the creative team didn't want it to be looked at, as something you watch after Paris is burning, you know, maybe they had a slightly different idea for the format there. So, and, and that truly is not the emphasis. And I do recognize that, right. It's about these people. It's Mm -hmm. not about the rules of the the game they're playing Um, and not game to diminish, but the second I saw them, I was like, Oh, here's queer sports. Let's do this.
1: (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong because this is definitely like very competitive and lots of like, Sorry, I'm blanking on words, but not catcalling, not catcalling at all. I mean, yes, I'm sure that was involved in the cheering aspect. But like when you basically just trash talk like each other like and other talk
0: teams. or read. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All of those things. Um, so it very much gives competitive vibes, which I also just find so fascinating because what they show a lot of is like the portrayal of femininity. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes we dissociate competition with femininity, but like, this is an example of how like it can be super intense and super feminine and like cutthroat and all of that stuff. And I just, I just really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, me too. And I've mentioned this on many a pod. I'm obsessed with drag race. Drag comes out of ballroom. You don't get drag without ballroom.
1: But I do think it's important to circle back to what you had said that like, time has passed even since 2016. So like let's talk about it. it's 2023 now. So time has passed since 2016 when this movie, when this documentary was made and time has passed since the 80s when Paris is burning was being made and the same issues are persisting and some could even argue that people in 2016, like pre-Trump had it better than we do now in 2023 because now in 2023 people are like new jersey just became a trans safe haven washington just became a trans safe haven and like yes back in 2016 everything was equally terrible across states but like we're coming into 400 some odd anti-lgbtq primarily anti-trans bills coming into legislation or areas to be discussed and like but we got marriage equality. Like I thought that that part of the documentary was very poignant because I remember celebrating marriage equality and also being like, okay, but is this really what we had asked for? Like people are still dying. People are still being murdered. People are still being fired simply for being who they are. So Mm -hmm. it is really sobering to realize that like for the first time in a long time, it doesn't actually feel like we've moved forward it feels like we've gone back or are regressing even more because of the attacks that are being thrown at our community.
0: Oh, absolutely. Part of why I think all of the people they focus on are so compelling to watch is their, you know, resilience to all of this. Like, I do not have as many struggles as, you know, a passing white man. And I internalize a lot of, or, or try not to, but you know a little bit happens sometimes when all these bills get introduced and blah 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 and people are talking about them and the people in this documentary are just like I'm gonna do me I'm gonna do what's fun and I mean obviously a lot of them have traumas and get triggered and things like that but their resiliency is honestly I think what makes them like so amazing and and beautiful to watch
1: yeah and I I really appreciated like the ways in which the families were showing up and I don't necessarily mean bio families. I mean, more chosen families were showing up for each other when big emotions were in the room or like in this space. And it just really reminds me how like queer people and trans people and, and people of color have been providing mental and emotional support for one another long before like white psychiatry and white psychology was like, ah, yes, let us help you heal from these traumas that we have also inflicted. So it like showed me another layer that it wasn't something that was just dismissed. It was something that was talked about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. When I, when we talk about chosen family and think about it, it's hard not to think about the ballroom houses and how much like, especially, you know, through the years when everyone gets kicked out for being trans and all that Mm -hmm. stuff, like that's where they go. That's all they Mm -hmm. can do. And so yeah, chosen family is everything.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you're probably going to get mad at me for bringing this up. So if you want, you can edit this out, but I'm going to. But it made me like watching this documentary Then made me think about knock at the cabin or wooden knock at the door, the wood in the cabin. What was it called? Wow. I think it's knock at the cabin. <laughs> knock at the cabin. OK, I thought that it had something to do with the door anyways. But like. How in that movie he had to kill his chosen family. And if these people. If any one of these people that was in this documentary was the main character in that movie and they had to choose to kill one of their chosen family or save the world. Based on what I saw in the documentary, I feel like they would choose their chosen family because like we hear what they have been through, and what they also they talk about like the cops in West Village, like what they go through at the hands of people who look like them, yeah. and really oftentimes these folks, their only safe haven or their only like safe space is their chosen family. So I think that's kind of like what got complicated for me with the knock at the cabin was like, you're asking these people who've been abandoned by people who are supposed to love them to save a world of people who hate them by killing somebody that they love. I don't know. I don't know. I think these people would be on my side. I don't know if their world would be saved, but that's my digression.
0: No, I think that's a good point. And I think you're right. I think if we look at the most marginalized people that we've done nothing but shit on and created systems that don't support them and done our best to kick the shit out of them their whole lives then yeah why on earth would they do something different back to humanity absolutely and i mean i would just rebuttal with an eye for an eye and the whole world's blind but also i have not been through what they've been through so
1: i have the bigger, yelled C- dedicated <laughs> <laughs> because I finally have an example of my question so but yes I do hear you I do hear you we can't all just be walking around that sounds ableist so I'm not going to finish that sentence but it was based in what you were just saying of an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind I get that
0: yeah but you know at the same time you don't get revolution without a little violence so uh, it's the, the whole world is yeah. a great area <laughs> that's, yeah. and that's yeah. what I have for you today <laughs>
1: you can see it from both perspectives (laughs) fucking goddamn it so I I'm curious out of all the people that we met was there like a a story or a person that you enjoyed seeing or learning about the most
0: Gia was the one who was like no I'm definitely cisgender okay yeah that's Gia loved that because like i swear to god all of us a couple months before we come out are like no i just don't want that you know like i'm comfortable in who i am they're like god damn it i was lying i figured it out (laughs) so that was weirdly relatable to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) i believe it's gia at the beginning who also says everything we do is a transition i'm pretty sure it's her audio over them like dancing And so it was kind of like this in the dances and the walking the runway, everything we do is a transition, but also as a trans person, right? So it was like a layered way to like open talking about a lot of this stuff. So that was also another one I appreciated. And she even says something like, you know, once you're socialized to be something, you then have to deconstruct everything you were taught just to be yourself. And I really liked that that's also like that's (laughs) incredibly accurate and also very difficult to do so Mm -hmm. i just i appreciated that like articulation of part of being trans is figuring out like yeah who you are what you do for joy and what you do because you're conditioned to do
1: Mm -hmm. yeah she was also my favorite person to get to know and looking back i think the scene gets more and more gut-wrenching and like heartbreaking but the scene where she's talking about that like she was the child that was essentially chosen to be sacrificed that she was the child that was put in special ed she was the child that like kind of had to fend for herself and just her introspection and her ability to see like why she was angry, why she was fighting and that like, she was the one that made the decision to stop that. And like, she's the one that got herself into school and graduated from school and got a job. And like, then I think she ends that, in, that interview part with like, but sometimes I still wonder like, why was I the one that was given up on? Like, you should be so proud of who I am and everything that I have accomplished but why me? I think it just, A, the more I think about it, it breaks my heart. Because to me, you you simultaneously hear someone who's so proud of everything that they've accomplished and everything that they've achieved. And a wounded child who just wishes that they had been chosen and cared for and loved and comforted and supported. And that's really beautiful and sad didn't we see her mom, like, wasn't her mom the one that was wearing like the blue lipstick and is like, yeah, no, she's, she's going to be who she is. She's super fierce. Like at first I wasn't super supportive, but then I just like came around and I'm like, yes, this is who I'm pretty sure that was her mother. And so it doesn't necessarily always neglect or abandonment or mistreatment doesn't always have to be intentional. And it can be that relationship can be repaired, but it doesn't necessarily mean that like the trauma or the impact of those decisions no longer exists. And this is also not to say that like she was the chosen one because she was trans or because she was different. She was maybe just had to be sacrificed because of the family dynamic. And then it also happened to be that because poverty makes you choose a lot it makes you have to do a lot of difficult decisions and so it, yeah i just loved her because i thought there was a lot of growth that she displayed but still like humility about where she still was
0: yeah agreed i think that was part of her appeal honestly as a as a person in this and when i was talking about like how resilient they all were earlier like she's kind of who comes to mind as well as the other trans woman i mean i don't know if she talks about Her, I mean, she talks briefly about her facial feminization surgery, Mm -hmm. but from what I've heard from trans women, it's incredibly painful, incredibly. And she just talked about it nonchalant, like it was no big deal. And I just, all I could think is, oh my gosh, you are such a champion. Like having to go through all of that is, I don't know. It does not sound pleasant. And I have had surgery at, you know, to help myself feel better about who I am. Uh Uh-huh nice flat chest and to have to get like so many to feel like yourself like i i just feel i just feel bad and i wish you know america had different health care so that stuff wasn't <laughs> an arm and a leg besides the pain of it all
1: yeah which then i mean we also see that same woman izana zaria mizrahi vidal so izana also talked about how like there aren't very many jobs available or like high paying jobs available for trans women even now or even back then, because back then was seven years ago.
0: Yeah. um,
1: And that's why she was like, that's why she entered into sex work was because she needed to pay for surgeries that would help her feel authentic in her lived experience and sex work pays.
0: Yeah. And I think after that follows a conversation where they talk about how there are trans people that are trans for money. That was a fascinating conversation to me. Like I don't doubt that. It's just something I'd never really considered before. And that like they know queer folks that know they can make more money as a trans woman or something like that. So they'll start transitioning to make more money because that's how desperate they are for money. And Whatever reason someone's trans is valid, I just had never really considered that as someone who's never experienced that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I did like that panel discussion where like one person was postulating like, doesn't this then negatively impact your identity as a trans woman? And then the other trans woman was like, no, like someone's reason for transitioning has nothing to do with my reason for transitioning. And I was like, yeah. Ever you might not necessarily agree with it on a like for your personal self, but that doesn't mean that others shouldn't be able to do it, yeah. So then I want to pivot slightly, um, and talk about HIV because <laughs> I was really happy that they included it as a topic mm-hmm. of concern and like,
0: yeah,
1: a real life issue that this community faces because oftentimes I feel like specifically within the gay men community that we, even from like a media perspective, almost view HIV or AIDS as like not that big of a thing because you can get prep for it or you can get treatment for it. And so the fear of AIDS and HIV seems to be a lot lower. And I still think it's really important. So I'm glad that they kept it in and they included that as a topic that's relevant because they very easily could have not and taken the approach of like, well, prep, everyone can just get on prep. And I really liked the interview where that person was like, and I knew when I got it, I knew, and I couldn't believe that I had become a statistic because it is still, or it can still be like a devastating diagnosis. I guess there's more hope, but like, HIV and AIDS does still kill. As we saw, it kill one of the people, or at least in the documentary, they attended a funeral or a candlelight vigil for someone who, for some reason, died from HIV, whether the medication wasn't working or they couldn't afford the medication or whatever. But like it does still kill. So I thought that was really important.
0: Oh, absolutely. And when they had their gathering and had the free... HIV testing and we're just like making a plug for it on the mic. I, I loved that. Yeah. Awareness really helps. So.
1: Yes. But then I like, so I agree with you. I think it's great that they have that at the events, but then I imagined being like someone who's like, yeah, I'm going to go to this event on a Friday night. I'm have a great Friday night. And then they go and they get tested. And then all of a sudden they find out that they're positive. And then they're just like distraught for the rest of the Friday night. And like, Would that really be a time that I would want to find out that I was positive, you know? So I think those events or those testing opportunities are great for people that like, you know, are going to be negative, but that like, I wouldn't necessarily want to be at a Kiki and find out that I was positive, but that's just me.
0: That's fair. I think the appeal is more that it's free. So if you need one, you take it where you can get it, but that's a good point. Yeah.
1: I also am probably biased because a lot of places in New York City offer free HIV testing. And so mm. it's still definitely great that they were doing it like they were bringing it to the people.
0: I really didn't like when they just showed us random categories, because if I don't know what the category is, how am I supposed to know if they're selling it? know what I'm saying? I was <laughs> like, what is this category? Sorry, that's just nitpicky. I had that thought in my notes a couple times. I'm like, okay, but what is the category? Okay, but what is the category?
1: (laughs) I'm glad you pivoted from such an important topic to another equally
0: important topic. I know, I'm sorry. We can edit that out and talk about No, no, you don't need to apologize. (laughs) No,
1: no, you don't need to apologize. I do think that that is very on brand for you. You like to be in the know. You like to have the criteria. That's true. I did just, again, shouting out to parents, like that they had two representations of supportive parents. So Gia's and then it was Twiggy. So I really loved that they took the time to travel down to Virginia and interview Twiggy and his mom about their relationship and how she eventually became supportive. I also think that that is a really important arc to show in black and brown queer stories because someone I went to college with was a, was a brown queer person. And when they were telling essentially like their coming out story and they were like, yeah, when I first came out, A whole bunch of my white friends were telling me that like I needed to move out. I needed to like get as far away from my family as I could because they were Muslim and they were Middle East, like Middle Eastern and they would not be supportive of me. And so for a really long time, I was terrified of coming out to my family. And then I realized that it was just my white friends, racist beliefs about my family's culture that made them think that my family wouldn't be supportive and made me believe that my family wouldn't be supportive And I say that to say that that was the first time that I had considered that like, we as white people have stereotypes about how black and brown individuals or people are gonna respond to queerness. And I think that these examples show that like, while sometimes families might not be supportive from the jump, that that doesn't necessarily mean you need to abandon them or that like they can never be supportive in their own journey. And so I liked that they included both of these stories and then the other kid who had the dad who was super small, and how he came out to his dad eventually, because he was terrified of him and he, his dad was just like really super supportive. That made me really happy. And I was like, again, with those stereotypes about like how we can assume that people from a certain culture will not be tolerant, but like that's the culture, not necessarily the individual. So I think this did a good job of showing the complexity of, While yes, this might be a community. They're still individual experiences.
0: Yeah. It also helped kind of emphasize that Kiki really is kind of more for like the entryway into ballroom, right? It's like these are kids is kind of the truth. Most of them, like, I think some of the House parents might be a little bit older, but, like, they all seem to be under drinking age. So, like, these are kids. It also is a bigger community than just the people in it. Like, they were talking about the Kiki Coalition that exists. Mm -hmm. That part was pretty interesting, where it had, like, multiple branches. The members were one, and then parents of the members were one, and then I think they got some community in there. So it's like they're all just talking about the scene that exists and, like, trying to make sure that (laughs) know they're all on the same page and it's doing the things it they're accomplishing the goals that they have and i don't know i i loved that when they were all just like getting together to talk about it i was like no this is community people
1: (laughs) right it was great
0: yeah it was and i don't know sometimes even when your own parents aren't supportive to see other supportive parents can be incredibly helpful agreed I think the unsung heroes of this documentary might be the MCs of all the ballroom and Kiki stuff. I love the MCs. I don't know how they do it, but yeah, it It is is a talent. It's, it's quite impressive, honestly. So shout out to the MCs. They're fantastic. They should get tens, tens, tens across the board.
1: Yes. Agreed. All right. And I think this is a solid documentary.
0: Yeah. I agree. Especially if someone's like not at all familiar with ballroom or the kiki scene or, you know, isn't obsessed with queer history like we are, you know, this is a, a good way to get a little snapshot of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And to hear some voices of, you know, black and brown folks, especially trans folks, they often don't get a voice. So it's good to hear their voices. Yeah.
1: Thank you for joining us today on Queer Watching. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at queer And if you liked what you heard today, give us a five-star rating where you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email with recommendations or feedback at queerwatching at gmail.com.